you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you tuning in and being with us here today. Thanks for uh, showing up. Uh, be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us on youtube.com, Fortunate Chris Voss, where you can actually see the video version of this conversation. If you're listening on uh, iTunes and all of our wonderful syndicated channels, uh, you can, of course, just in the audio version if you want as well. Be sure for your friends, neighbors, relatives, we certainly appreciate you guys doing that. We've set up a new book club under patreon.com forward slash Chris Voss, and it's a book club we're building where we talk about the show, talk about the authors, talk about the books. If you want to get a chance to check out that book club, Check it out as well, patreon.com, Fortress Chris Voss. Uh, some exciting things that we'll be talking about. We'll be talking about the guests on the show, the books on the show, uh, giving you some background, et cetera, et cetera, and all that good stuff. Uh, so check that out. Today we have a most excellent guest, as always. What guest isn't excellent? We have all the best guests. Uh, he has written the book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. His name is Robert P. Jones. He is the CEO and founder of PR. RRI and a leading scholar and commentator on religion, culture, and politics. He's the author of the book we just mentioned and The End of White Christian America. Jones writes a column for The Atlantic online on politics and culture and is frequently featured in major national media such as MSNBC, CNN, NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others. You may have heard of some of these entities. Uh, Jones serves on the National Program Committee for the American Academy of Religion and is a past member of the editorial boards for the Journal of American Academy of Religion and Politics. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Robert? Hey, Chris. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you on because uh, we've been having this discussion for quite some time kind of around Black Lives Matter, that seems to be the topic, mm -hmm. the rules. We've been talking about racism, and, and a lot of white people have been going, okay, well, how do we contribute to this? And we've kind of turned a page recently. But you, you've written an interesting book, um, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and you've been talking about this, these sort of issues for a while. Uh, give us some plugs so people can look you up on the interwebs. Yeah, um, well, uh, the book has just been out for two weeks, um, so it's, it's pretty much hot off the press. Um, and, you know, it's a book that um, very much came out of my own uh, kind of thinking and wrestling with um, the issues coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, I started working on the book in earnest um, really after the Charlottesville um, events with uh, white supremacists, um, you know, demonstrating in Charlottesville. We just recently had the three year anniversary, you know, of that of that event um, and just last week. Um, so, you know, it really came out of my own uh, wrestling. I mean, I am a, a religion scholar and social scientist in my day job. Uh, so kind of taking those hats and uh, trying to look at the history and put that in conversation with both current public opinion data and um, as someone who grew up in the South um, as a white evangelical Christian, um, trying to put it in conversation with my own family's history as well. 
This is what I found interesting when I uh, did research on you, as we always do for our guests, and I watch a lot of your videos. I mean, you're you're someone like normally someone would look at a perception of the this book title and go, "Oh, this guy probably isn't you know into religion, and maybe he's an atheist throwing some rocks." Yeah, but uh, you're definitely you're definitely talking about the issues, and and it sounds like you're going through a lot of the things we're all going through like what's you know how do we contribute to this so was it the was it that that really drove you to write the book that moment where we saw those those people in in charleston where you know they were marching and everything well i think like many of us you know it had been building i mean we had you know before that we had um you know a whole the whole first round of black lives matter you know um that where we had freddie gray we had michael brown um, you know, and then we had this, you know, awful shooting uh, with Dylan Roof um, in Charleston uh, with the murder of nine African-American worshipers at, you know, uh, at an African-American church. So I, I think it was, you know, it's really the kind of culmination of those things. Um, but but I think it, it really did, I think, uh, in 2017 with the Charlottesville thing. I mean, I, that was, I think, what finally spurred me to say, all right, you know, I really do need to take some time and really dig into this history. And again, as also as I was looking at current public opinion data and seeing in particular um, kind of relative to the book, whenever we would ask questions around structural racism, um, white Christians would um, have a very difficult time even admitting that they were a reality. Uh, and so it was that right, you know, um, kind of wrapped up with the history and the, and things uh, just right out of the headlines that, uh, made me think uh, this is worth digging into and, and trying to sort out what's 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 really going on there. Mm-hmm. So can you give us an overview of the scope of the book, uh, kind of the body of what maybe it about kind of a, uh, a heads yeah. up view? Yeah, you know, so um, the first thing I should say is the book is personal. It's the first personal book I've written. I mean, usually I just kind of keep my social scientist hat on and um, I write with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, percent signs. Um, this has got more quotation marks than percent signs um, in this uh, in this book. Um, and, you know, it begins the first uh, uh, sentence of the book has the word "I" in it. The last sentence of the book has the word "us" in it. So, in some ways, I'm writing as a white Christian, really trying to wrestle uh, with these issues and with my own family and my own uh, kind of denomination and upbringings history. Uh, but it, but I sort of then try to marry it up with a lot of history to kind of understand how we got to where we are. Um, and then finally, um, to the point of the sub- subtitle, The Legacy of White Supremacy, um, I spent some time right in the middle of the book uh, showing how this is very much still with us today, particularly in white Christian uh, churches and among white Christian subgroups. This inability really to see structural racism um, is something that is so strong and so consistent um, over kind of current public opinion survey after survey um, that, that you can really see how this history still plays out and is still very much with us today. This is interesting off the Amazon page with his family's 1815 Bible in one hand and contemporary public opinion surveys by the Public Religion Research Institute in the other. Uh, you deliver groundbreaking analysis of the repressed history of the symbiotic relationship between Christianity and white supremacy. That's heavy stuff right there, man. Uh, it's not light. Um, you know, I, I will say, you know, I try to not pull any punches um, in the book and, and try to tell it as straight as I can. I mean, I think this sort of a part of the the uh, book. I know you've had uh, some other guests on and talked about James Baldwin, and, and one of the, I read a lot of Baldwin for this book. Um, in mm. fact, the title of the book comes from James Baldwin, "The White White Too Long." Oh, wow. uh, there, and uh, you know, in the ep- I'll kind of read you real quickly just so you can get a sense of it. The epigraph 
um, you know, of the book comes from a um, comes from a piece that he wrote in the New York Times just a few months after the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Um, so he had been fairly, like King, I think, fairly um, hopeful that whites and particularly white Christians would stand up uh, during the civil rights movement, and then quickly became very disillusioned, even you know, even at, at the uh, after the deaths of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, that there wasn't this big uprising. So he wrote this in, the, in those months where he was feeling, I think, fairly pessimistic. Um, but I thought it was um, really worth it. And again, it serves as the epigraph of the book, and it's where I take the title. Uh, but these are James Baldwin's words, uh, February 1969. Um, I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he goes on to talk about um, how this um, kind of being wedded to this idea of whiteness has really obstructed uh, whites, and particularly white Christians, where it's kind of been built into our religion, um, really obstructed our moral vision um, and made, you know, the um, kind of the, the other image I think that has stayed with me is um, from Martin Luther King's uh, letter from Birmingham jail. And um, if you know that piece of writing, uh, you know, he's not really uh, excoriating the fringe groups that are, you know, lynching people and burning crosses in people's lawns. I mean, he really is criticizing the kind of more respectable, mainstream white Christians that are just sitting on the sidelines. And he has this great line in there where he says, um, like, he's, he's kind of in dismay, like Baldwin, kind of in dismay, like, where are all these white Christians? Why aren't they showing up? Um, and, and he says, who are these, uh, you know, white Christians sitting comfortably beti- behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is the function, really, that um, in many ways, white Christian theology and churches have played um, on issues of racial justice, rather than enlivening our moral sensibilities, they have really lulled our consciences to sleep. Yeah, it's 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 been an interesting journey for me. I grew up uh, in um, what I term as a religious cult, the Mormon Church, um, and uh, you know right away I knew that uh, something was something was up and something was wrong with that whole setup. Uh, I think uh, from your background, you probably are familiar with it a little bit. They're good people in the church. Um, <clears throat> But uh, so I, I become an atheist, and so I don't have a lot of study beyond uh, my teenage years of religion. I, I've tried to stay away from much of it. And what was interesting to me was uh, I've always uh, followed Morning Joe, MSNBC, in Isadi on Eddie Glott Jr. Mm-hmm. on with his book on Baldwin. And I looked at it, and I was like, who's this guy? This thing seems kind of interesting. You know, I spent most of my life running my businesses rather than uh, dealing with politics. Now I deal with more politics. And... Uh, and then uh, uh, I got to know uh, James Baldwin through his work, and uh, it just opened my eyes to so much stuff. Mm. And yeah. then one of the things was, um, I think it was, I think it was uh, Eddie Gaud Jr. or Nicholas Piccolo. Uh, he said they we talked about white religion manifest destiny. Uh, we've had the uh, author of the uh, City on the Hill book who talks about mm-hmm. uh, how Puritan religion took the City on the Hill phrase and turned it into this this marching order. Um, and, uh, so I, I learned so much from this experience and I remember Googling cause, cause we talked about how, uh, there was a separation of white and black churches or, or black people couldn't yeah. go to white churches. They had to do their own, 
their own church. And I think you talked about one of the interviews about how the, the, the Baptist conventions and stuff broke apart. So there was a black and white version or North and South, I think. Um, and uh, it was extraordinary to me. And I Googled it. And the first thing I came up was white churches and there's KKK people sitting in the pews. And I'm mm-hmm. like within full robes and I'm like, whoa. And uh, so I, it just blew my mind to just kind of be on this pattern of learning of stuff as to how this, how, how kind of ingrained this is. Yeah, it, it's very, very deep. And it goes all the way back to the country's founding. I, I think that's the, the, the challenge. And even for, you know, someone like me who spent most of my life studying religion, I mean, I was astonished at how much of this was new to me, um, you know, even as a religion scholar. I mean, it, this history has really just been repressed uh, and suppressed, um, you know, really both. Um, and, and so there's one example. I mean, there were, um, I, I, again, I'm kind of following my own family's journey in many ways in the book as, as well as um, kind of larger historical trends. And um, so my, both of my parents are from Macon, Georgia, um, and my family goes back on both sides of the family, like six generations in Macon. Um, and the, the church that was the, the kind of parent church, so the church that my, my parents grew up in, was founded in 1825. It's First Baptist Church of Macon, Georgia. Um, and at the time it was founded, you know, it was fairly common. And this was not that unusual across, you know, the country in the late 1700s, early 1800s, is that white slave owners would bring enslaved people to church with them, right? Uh, they would, and the whites would sit up front. African-Americans would sit in the back or in specially constructed slave galleries um, or, or, you know, up in the balcony. Um, and you can still see this in the architecture of many old, um, you know, historic churches today. And we literally built white supremacy into the architecture of the churches uh, there, you know, and, and if you think about that seriously as the kind of seedbed of early Christianity in America, and you ask the question, so what kind of sermons could get preached in an environment like that, right? <laughs> I never thought of that. And, 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 what, and what passages from the Bible could get read? Um, what, what hymns could get sung, right? And, and how would you do things like communion? Um, you know, all of that stuff is deeply structured, you know, by that uh, by this uh, really, um, you know, this expression of white supremacy in in the churches. And so, you know, for example, um, like the book of Exodus, you know, uh, and you mentioned white and black Baptists, for example. I mean, what you see is this very different outgrowth that, that in that setting, in that, seg- in that setting where you had enslaved people, you know, in, kind of drugged to church uh, with their enslavers, um, you know, the white minister was not going to preach about uh, the slaves going free in Egypt from the book of Exodus, right? That's not a sermon you're going to hear a lot of from a white yeah. preacher with a, a, a group of enslaved people in, in the church. Uh, but what happens when African-Americans get their independence in their own churches? You hear a lot of that, right? Liberation, slaves going free, uh, you know, um, the uh, last being made first and the first being made last, those kinds of themes come forward in a way that they don't really um, in white Christianity. So part of the challenge here is to really take that history seriously and ask, you know, honestly, how much of that has been reformed? How much of that has been excised? And how much of that is still, you know, very much with us today? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Did they allow the black people to take communion in the sacrament? I know some churches that was, I know in the Mormon church at one time, uh, they were not allowed to, I think. Yeah, you know, there's a whole history here of, I mean, there were various practices, but all of them com- communicated um, a clear hierarchy, right, with whites at the top and, and blacks below whites, um, no matter how it was. So sometimes uh, they would set up a separate communion so that whites would take it first, uh, and then Af- and then African-Americans could take it second. And, and for example, the Catholic Church, um, 
the white Catholic church uh, was, was doing this well into the middle of the 20th century. I mean, even in the 1940s, um, it was not uncommon, even where congregations had a mixed uh, congregation, that whites would go up to receive the Eucharist first. And only after all the white members of the congregation had gone were African-Americans allowed to come forward. Um, and that was in the 20th century. I mean, so that's not really that, that long ago. So, I mean, these practices have been handed down uh, and they've been modified a bit, but this assumption of kind of a racial hierarchy built in to Christianity. Um, and again, you know, I think the evangelical church or, or maybe the Mormon church, um, you know, gets, uh, I think, is the most notable, I think, for these things. But one of the remarkable things about the book is that, um, or that I found in doing the book was um, that these patterns are very much there, even in white, the white Catholic church and even in the white mainline Protestant church, which is perceived to be and historically has been the more progressive end or the more liberal end of the white uh, Protestant world. But these practices permeated really all of uh, white Christianity. Uh, it, growing up Mormon, I, uh, early on, on a business meeting, I met with Dr. Reverend, uh, Franz Davis, who'd walk with, uh, uh, Martin Luther King under the bridge mm-hmm. and, and had a really lot, a great conversation with him. And he gave me a tour of his church and I was like, you guys have drums and you guys sing. And I'm like, you guys, you guys are fun, man. <laughs> you guys have a fun church over here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, Mormonism the same way was was raised with a ton of racist stuff. I mean, Brigham Young said so many ugly things. They they can't even release his his journal. Um, they won't release his journal. Um, and uh, the LDS presence over the years said so many racial things. And in in their in their tome or whatever book you want to call it or fiction um, is is uh because you know joseph smith i mean come on uh i, I think well, anyway i'll go on about um <laughs> in, their, in the book uh they they say that they say that black people are part of the lamanites and so they were cursed with blackness because they were yeah. they say all sorts of horrible things about them being subhuman let's put it that way um and that narrative goes through the mormon church up until the 70s when they're suddenly opening, trying to open missions in, in countries like South America and Africa. And it's a little hard to sell that sort of business. If you're, you know, you've got stuff written down talking about how horrible they are. Um, and so the, you know, they have epiphany revelation and went, Oh, you know, we're, we're cool with everybody now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I spent some time on the theology here too, because I, it, it is remarkable um, again, how, uh, recently, and these sorts of doctrines, and it's not just the, you know, the LDS church. I mean, the, the, among Southern Baptists, which uh, is the denomination which I grew up, um, you know, and, and it grew to be the largest Protestant denomination in the country by the middle of the 20th century. There were 16 million Southern Baptists by the middle of the 20th century, um, you know, and so it was no fringe group, but, you know, among its early teachings were a very similar teaching mm-hmm. uh, that kind of re- read back into the story of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament. Mm. Um, And for those who don't know it, it's basically an early fratricide story, right? That that Cain murders his brother Abel out of jealousy um, and then lies about it. Um, And uh, and through a kind of interesting turn of events, uh, the the scripture says that that God marked him um, uh, with with a physical mark. And then, and, but it doesn't really say it's racial. It doesn't say it's skin. It just says he marked him in some way. Um, uh, and, and what happened was in, in white Christian theology, uh, uh, they took that and ran with it and made that to be about the origin story of black people, um, wow. in, in the world. Right. And so you've got then, uh, the origin story of, of white people is, you know, through Adam and Eve and, um, and, and through the righteous brother, 
And you've got the story of African-Americans literally through a criminal is the birth of African-Americans into the world was through a criminal act. Um, And that's, that was, you know, and, and that, so it was not only dark skin, but the original ancestor of African-Americans in this theology was a criminal. Right. And so that was a way of kind of, again, reinscribing this, not only kind of, you know, racial uh, hierarchy, but as you said, like a a moral hierarchy, right? That white people were literally better, uh, created better uh, than than black people that justified all kinds of logic about then manifest destiny, we already mentioned, uh, but about, you know, whites being on this God-ordained mission to civilize, you know, the rest of the world because they were up here at the top of the moral uh, you know, like by by God's design at the top of the moral uh, pyramid and had this kind of, um, you know, patriarchal duty um, you know, to really subjugate and quote unquote civilize, you know, other other people. And that runs really deep, again, all the way into the 20th century. You can hear this being preached, um, you know, and this interpretation, um, uh, uh, r- you know, right out of the Bible uh, mm-hmm. among among Southern Baptists. And so is that the core where it really comes from, or is just is it is it just the hate in people's hearts or racism that we've you know inherited from so many years ago uh, that you know that's just the excuse they're looking for? Yeah, you know it's always interesting. Like um, uh, when you, I mean, I, I read this mostly through a sociological lens. Yeah, you know, so when you see a, I mean, one of the questions I always ask is that when you see a, a dominant theological frame emerge it's always worth asking what's going on in the world while that frame is emerging, right? And so you get these uh, interpretations, um, you get them in the Catholic church, you get them in the Protestant churches. um, And it's really, you know, it goes back to kind of a a European colonial mindset, right? And so when you have this sense of um, Western European powers really sitting at building empires and colonizing the world, um, you know, you, you, you need a worldview that justifies that. And one of the more powerful um, ways of legitimizing a worldview is through religion, right? And the dominant religion in Western Europe is Christianity. So that gets built in, I think, through economic interest, uh, through political interest. Uh, and then you get this theology that fits, hand, you know, not surprisingly, hand in glove with these economic and political interests. And religions used to basically be governments. I mean, the Catholic Church, I mean, you know, they they were they're basically a government and so you know do what they want and and like you say pushing so it sounds like maybe it more comes down to power and the retainment of power and the control of power maybe i mean it's certainly been that way and this is a good way to just talk about whiteness for a minute you know that um and how whiteness gets melded onto christianity in the american context um and again i think baldwin has really been helpful for me um on this, this front i mean he he um he would often kind of flip the script you know in the 60s there were I don't know, white author after white author writing about the quote-unquote Negro problem. Um, And Baldwin would say, well, let's talk about the white problem. Uh, You know, kind of flipped it around. And and one of the things you realize, I think, historically, is this category of whiteness is not a stable one, right? It's a very malleable uh, category. And in fact, you know, um, Baldwin was like very, I think, shrewd to point out that, look, uh, before... uh, people came to the America, people who came from France saw themselves as French. They didn't think of themselves as white. Uh, Germans, you know, they were German, they were French, they were British, they were Irish. Um, You know, it's only when they get to America, really, into this kind of mixture um, where the concept of whiteness really takes off as an umbrella term um, to really signal admission to this class that's in power, right, And, and where certain rights are preserved. And so if you even you think about you know, the constitution and, and, and early voting rights. I mean, who could vote? I mean, you had to be white 
uh, you had to be male and you had to own land, right? Um, that's who could vote um, in, in early, you know, constitutional, uh, in the early constitutional setting. So, you know, it, it's, it's been very clear if you just kind of have, a, you know, if you pause long enough to, to look at our history, it really has been kind of protecting this kind of category of power and privilege that's around whiteness. Um, and Christianity has been really wrapped up in that um, as the kind of prime central legitimizer of, of that and putting this kind of stamp of divine authenticity on top of this. One thing I really loved about James Baldwin is he really speaks to white people. Um, and he's like you mentioned, he's talking to us going, look, yeah. and I think he said this in I am not your Negro, uh, his dissertation of that. It was, look, white people, this is your problem, not our problem. This is your problem. You got to deal with this. You got to fix yourselves. Um, and he and he did a very nice, empathetic, emotional, intellectual way. I just I just love the delivery of James Baldwin of his ideas. Um, but but he was right. He's like, look, you 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 guys are the racists. You guys are everyone's having problems over here. We're you know we're just trying to get along. But uh, and he gives a good pathway and a good uh, uh, workout uh, to you know what we should probably be focusing on, you know, looking internally and going, hmm, maybe I need to need to change. Um, what was interesting, I learned a lot from uh, Eddie Glaude Jr.'s book, but Begin Again, because he talked about the arc of, of, of James Baldwin's writings, but also the arc of history and how, you know, we, we kind of had those great times during Johnson, uh, and then we kind of fell apart with Nixon, uh, and Nixon, you know, really went after well, everybody, um, Jewish people, uh, you know, people of color. Um, and then, so then, you know, kind of pull back and then you go to Carter for a while and things seem a little bit, might seem a little better, better, even though we're in a session, which affects usually minorities more. Um, and then we went into Reaganism, which was very anti-black, you know, and just given his, his sort of rhetoric that he used to put out in, in, uh, bef- to become governor and, and becoming governor. Um, in fact, there was a lot of art, uh, stuff in that, and Gene Guerrero's book recently, Hate Monger, that we reviewed. Um, and you go through this arc, and, and he basically laid out, uh, Eddie did, is this arc of how we keep going through these racist sort of presidents. And now we've like really hit the mother load with, uh, with uh, Mr. Trump and Stephen Miller. And it's interesting to me as to how much white, uh, white Christian churches support these guys as we've gone through these curves the ronald reagan you know they were big for him trump they're big for him and what's even extraordinary is as an atheist as someone who grew up in religion you know i've read the bible <laughs> and 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 i and so i i still to this day go i don't think jesus would do that I, i'm pretty sure i read the bible um seemed like a nice guy I don't think he did that. He, he would approve of that. And so what's extraordinary is you see these horrors that the Trump administration and Stephen Miller have been doing to people. And you're just like, is there, what, what's the breaking point for right religious people to go, okay, you know, we've had enough, you know, um, it, it's been extraordinary to watch. Yeah. Well, we haven't seen it yet. Um, the breaking point, um, you know, and, and just a kind of reminder in 2016, you know, white evangelicals got like all the, press, you know, because they, they voted like 81% for, for Donald Trump. And, and that was actually a little bit higher than they even voted for George W. Bush. Um, but, you know, the other thing to remember is the, the other white Christian subgroups also voted for Trump. Um, so white Catholics, nearly two thirds of them voted for Trump. Wow. Um, and, and white mainline Protestants, again, this is the National Council of Churches crowd, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, um, uh, the Methodists, uh, they voted 57%. Uh, for Donald Trump, right? So you've got all the white Christian groups on that side. 
Um, it's worth saying, so, you know, PRI is a nonpartisan, you know, organization, and um, I'm going to be kind of careful to say that, but the, the pattern here is so clear um, that, uh, for example, today, if you look at the, the, um, the, the two political parties and, and their, their makeup in terms of race and religion, the Republican Party today is about 70% white and Christian, right? So it's a very homogeneous party. The Democratic Party today is only about a third. Um, white and Christian. And this gap has been getting bigger um, over over time. So what's behind that trajectory, really, if you trace this back as you did, um, the the real genesis of, of the composition of our current of our two political parties is in the is in the Civil Rights Acts in the mid 1960s. And once we get the Democratic Party being associated as the party of all rights, there is literally a white Christian flight from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, right? You see this, the, this movement, and it takes a little while, takes about 15 years, and it really settles with Reagan. Um, Reagan mm-hmm. is the one who really finally pulled everyone in. Um, and, you know, uh, again, I mean, this kind of opening event of Reagan's um, presidential, you know, campaign, not to mention some of the events you could cite from his governorship, but uh, it's worth noting that, you know, uh, I think it was the earliest public event on his calendar was to go to Neshoba County, Mississippi, um, and speak at the Neshoba County Fair, that's just, you know, a, a few miles away from the county seat uh, where the civil rights workers were killed um, in, in Mississippi. So he shows up there and he makes a speech where he emphasizes uh, states' rights, um, you know, in a, in a speech there uh, with none other, by the way, than Paul Manafort um, as the person who was organizing his early um, strategy there, right, who shows back up as Trump's campaign manager decades later. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think this 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 sense and this deployment of what came to be called the Southern strategy by the, by the Republican party exploited uh, white Christians belief um, and racial animosity to create really uh, the current uh, two party divide that we have um, that, that, that is heavily divided around issues of racial justice, um, you know, as much as they are anything else. Yeah. And in, in, in order for him to become governor when he was running, he was bashing Mexicans. Uh, you know, California was largely, I guess, Republican back before he became governor. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, there was a lot of people coming from, from Mexico and, and, and so he demonized those people, uh, to, in order to win office. And then, of course, he, I guess he learned, hey, this works great, just like Trump did. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to me. So let me ask you this. You know, I, I settled in when I first saw the voting numbers because, you know, in the, the morning after 2016, I woke up with a hangover and went and went, oh my God, what just happened? Especially when we handed him the House and the Senate, too. Um, and so I struggled to, you know, look through all this voting data and try and figure out what, what the hell happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Utah... Uh, it was kind of funny. Everyone was saying in Utah, we won't vote for him. He's awful. And we kind of had like some presidential guy here. I forget his name um, that was going to just split the ticket or whatever. Oh, and then McMullen. Yeah. yeah, McMullen. Great guy. Yeah. And they, and they, and they just went on for Trump when the numbers came in. Um, and so at first I kind of looked at it and I went, okay, they really want that Supreme court stuff. They really want, you know, a turnover of Roe v.s. way. Okay. I get, I get what they want, but now, you know, more and more like reading these books and sitting on a hill and manifest destiny and, you know, all this sort of stuff, I'm starting to wonder if it really isn't all about that. If it really is, it's about power control and a bit of racism through it all. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly my take, too. Um, and so I've been, you know, doing kind of public opinion work, um, you know, for more than a decade now. 
Um, I've never seen a survey where evangelicals listed abortion or judges as their top voting priority. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, I thought it, it, see, I know, thought it was. No. Um, you, usually we ask, if you ask it in a battery of a whole bunch of other things, abortion, same-sex marriage, these things that were supposedly the tip of the sphere of the culture wars, mm-hmm. they show up in the bottom third uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of actual priorities. If you ask people about vote or what's most important to people in the country, um, it, now, you know, evangelicals will rate it higher than other groups, but still, it's not, it's not terrorism, the economy, jobs, like these other things are much higher um, uh, than, than those things. So I think that's never really been driving it. Um, wow. We did some, we did some analysis after 2016, because I think the big question was, was it economic anxiety coming out of the recession, or was it kind of cultural anxiety? And, um, and in our analysis that we did with the Atlantic uh, magazine, um, we kind of tested these two narratives. And, um, you know, what the numbers told us from 2016 was that it, it was about um, two to one uh, cultural anxiety instead of um, uh, economic anxiety. In other words, people were more concerned or more driven to their vote choice by their attitudes on immigration, racial issues. Um, and it really is about American identity. And maybe one question that kind of goes to the heart of it um, is we asked a question um, in 2016, turned out to be highly predictive of vote. Um, and the question went like this. It said, um, do you think the American culture and way of life has changed for the better or changed for the worse since the 1950s? Um, and it turns out the country was evenly split um, on that question. And the two political parties look like mirror images of each other. Two thirds of Democrats say things have changed for the better. Two thirds of Republicans say things have changed for the worse. Um, and all the white Christian groups are over there aligned with the Republicans saying things have changed for the worse. Whites who aren't Christian aligned over here saying things have changed for the better. And so I think it's a little clue for us that, you know, these divisions really are about like identity, right? And, and who is America? Who are we as a country? And I think this sense of white Protestants, especially like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, WASPI, we have that little acronym even, um, being used to the idea that they are America, right? And that suddenly the country is actually changing around them. And, and that's no longer true. Uh, so like my last book, uh, The End of White Christian America, I just documented this, this basic demographic shift that in the last 10 years, we've gone from being a country that was demographically speaking, majority white and Christian. Uh, so in 2008, the country, when Barack Obama was first running for president, the country was 54% white and Christian. Uh, today, that number is 44 uh, percent. So we've lost, if we kind of crossed the threshold, we lost about 10 percentage points in, in terms of the general population of being white and Christian. So, you know, we are at a really different place where white Christians can no longer even claim to be numerically, uh, you know, the majority in the country, much less uh, calling the shots at the level of culture and politics. That's really interesting, man. You're blowing my mind. I, identity. You know, you're, you're right. That's that's really the clarification of the Manifest Destiny, the city on the hill. This is our country. You know, we. I think we talked with Nicholas Bacola about just all the horrific things we did to the Indians, uh, to, to black people. You know, even then, when you kind of look at the, the way, the arc of, of history uh, between policy, where we've zoned out or redlined certain neighborhoods, yep. you know, even Trump's talking about that now, where he's trying to dial back the, re- I guess, the redlining or, or the things. Um, Eddie Law Jr. even mentioned in my interview, he's like, they build freeway systems to to keep certain people away from white yep. people and and build slums. I mean, it's 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 this it's it's interesting just 
the fabric of it is so thick and, and waving so heavily. And you're just like, how do we dig out of this? You know, I, I asked Eddie Glaude Jr. I'm like, are we going to be here, you know, 60 years from now talking about Baldwin and how we still didn't learn from his lessons? Um, and uh, I noticed on the cover of your book, there it's a it's a diamond or it's a it's a pyramid, uh, if so. And it, am I wrong? But it remind me of a hood. Am I? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interestingly ambiguous. I have to I have to say that was not the the original design. Um, it, it's actually a church steeple. Um, was oh, the is original it? design okay. right with well, the cross on the top of the steeple? But it's interesting. It, it it's a it it has. I've heard from various people. It's a cross with a white shadow. It's yeah. a steeple with a cross on it, or in fact, it looks a bit like it could possibly be a KKK hood, right, with the cross on the top. I actually don't mind the ambiguity, but um, but it wasn't uh, intentional. Like, <laughs> I, I looked at it and I'm like, well, there there is a cross, and yeah, the implication of a steeple. But then I was like, that kind of looks kind of hoody. So anyway, um, but uh, no, you you this this is some interesting stuff. How how well have, has the book been received? I saw you talking, I think, at a Baptist conference uh, or a or a PAC agency or, or some sort of uh, group yep. of people, uh, and I, I was really heartened that that everyone seemed really upset, receptive, and everyone talked about how uh, you know we need to do some internal uh, uh, conversations with ourselves. Well, you know, I do think there's an opening, and I have to say, there's I I think there's more opening now um, in the wake of um, you know the the death of George Floyd and 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 all of the the protests uh, about you know police violence against African Americans than I than I would have anticipated, right? So you know, books take a while to kind of work their way through the press, and so I turned in the final manuscript last fall uh, when none of this was was really going on. So I think I did worry like. Will there even be an opening, right, to have this conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and there's there's much more of an opening now. And and so you know, I uh, even the the two weeks the book's been out, I've spoken at uh, two churches and a synagogue already in the last couple of weeks. And I think that's where the real work gets yeah. done is on the ground in local communities. Um, uh, and I you know those two churches in Macon that I that I highlight in the book, I do that because I think that's really where the work um, will happen and where the changes. Um, uh, will happen. Um, and, you know, and I, the other thing I'll say is just one kind of glimmer of hope here, too, is that, um, so I, again, I grew up in Mississippi. Uh, you know, Mississippi was the the last state um, uh, to have the Confederate battle flag still incorporated into its state flag. And I would not have anticipated uh, when I turned the book in just, you know, uh, last fall, um, that uh, by the time the book was was out, that Mississippi legislature would have voted to take the, that Confederate battle flag out, that the governor would have signed it. And, and I think more importantly than that, before all that happened, the, none other than the Mississippi Baptist Convention held a press conference and called on the legislature and That's the governor right. to do it uh, yeah. before they did it. Um, and actually a former colleague, a friend of mine, actually, who's the president of the Mississippi Baptist Convention, was the one standing there, you know, calling on the governor and the legislature to, to you know, finally step up and do the right thing. Um, but, you know, but I think that's, you know, that's that means a, a different kind of conversation is happening because, I mean, that's the state arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Again, the domination that was literally created to defend slavery in 1845. Wow. That's just crazy, man. The you know, I think. Uh... Someone said on my podcast, they said, you know, basically the, you know, I supported Black Lives Matter in 2014. A lot of my, a lot of white people didn't get behind it. Um, yep. But 
uh, George Floyd was, we, we watched basically a modern lynching on TV. Yeah. We all had to watch it. We all had to see it. We all had to empathize with it if we had uh, a soul. Um, and I think that's what really changed it for white people and flipped the switch. And then, you know, we started to see how integrated uh, systematic racism is into our society, into police departments and what was going on. And it kind of was a straw that broke the back too. But I think watching that sort of horrific lynching on television was, was the thing that flipped the switch. Um, you know, you mentioned in the book, if you want to retell the story, I think it's great uh, about the two churches who had separated mm. from black and white. I don't know if you want to share that with us. Sure. Yeah. 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 You know, I think that's right. You know, I also think, um, uh, I, again, I, I do think that that you're right that the early the sort of 2014-2015 era of Black Lives Matter when it first broke through, I think you're right it did not really get on the on the radar of white people um, as well and or much and and I even know like you know churches that tried to put a Black Lives Matter sign it got vandalized it got burned oh, it wow. got you know in in 2015 and I think this summer that hasn't happened I've seen a lot more of them and I haven't heard any from any of my my pastor friends have had any trouble that they did in 2015. Wow. Uh, when they when they first took that stand, so something different's happening. Um, but the, yeah, the two churches in Macon. Um, so again, one of them was the progenitor of my parents. Uh, you know, the parent church of my parents' uh, church uh, in in Macon, the the, the predominantly white one. Um, but what's interesting about them is that they have shared this history. And and again, they used to be the same church back in before the Civil War. It was white slave owners taking their enslaved um, uh, and people to uh, with them to church. Um, and then they split um, actually before the war. And one of the reasons why they split is because as tensions were heating up around um, abolitionist movement uh, in, in the late 1840s, uh, the enslaved people actually outnumbered the slave owners um, in oh, the yeah. church. And there was, a, I think, actually some kind of worries about safety. Um, mm. that, uh, and so they actually uh, purchased land and a building for the African-American church. Of course, they put a white pastor in charge of it. Um, oh, seriously. Time, right. Yeah. I mean, wow. they, they, so it was still very much directly under the quote unquote supervision of the white church. Uh, and, and, but after the civil war, they got their own independence, but what, you know, they like many churches who share this kind of history, then just kind of sat there not too far from each other in this, you know, modest sized town of Macon uh, around the corner from each other and just ignoring each other's existence for 150 years. Um, and then finally got, you know, had two pastors, um, James Goolsby, uh, from First Baptist New Street and uh, Scott Dickinson from uh, First Baptist uh, and, and Church of Christ uh, of, of Christ and uh, and they finally just you know met and just said like what are we doing like you know we share this history and we have no connection with one another and they and they literally just sat down and said like we don't really know how we're going to do this but let's let's agree together that we're going to start building some community between our two. Uh, congregations. And, you know, they're not really up to mer- remerge the church or anything like that, but but they are about um, trying to build um, some connections with each other in ways, I think, in particular, um, that have shifted the vision of the, of the white church in particular, I think, because the white church has had to face this very challenging and difficult history, including, for example, like, you know, as they started to dig into it, they've encountered things like, um, you know, some lean times for the church, uh, and what the accounting ledgers look it seemed to indicate is that when they were having trouble paying the bills, uh, that one of the ways they covered the bills, they actually sold uh, some of the enslaved members of the church to pay the bills of the church, to pay the pastor's salary and to pay off the building. Um, and having to face that, you know, kind of history, that that's part of the history of who they are. 
um, and, and in relationship to this other church. But it, it over like a period of five years, they built enough trust um, that, for example, last year they went together to Montgomery um, to visit uh, the Memorial for Peace and Healing, which is the museum uh, 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 kind of memorializing the lynching victims um, in the country. So they took this one, one bus, took people there um, from both churches and came back and had um, a joint worship service and, converse, and conversation about that experience. Now, that's something that's not easy to do, um, right, and takes some time and some trust. Um, but I think by kind of allowing this kind of honest conversation to take place um, over a period of years where they're actually getting to know each other, again, I think this kind of movement, um, you're totally right, it's daunting when you think about how deep this stuff is. Um, but I think that kind of um, really organic connection is the way to undo it um, going forward. That and that's awesome. I I, I was going to ask you: Do you think do you think it has to start with the preachers uh, that are out there on Sunday morning? What they're talking about, what they're discussing, they have to start leading their their followers to, hey, let's all try and figure out how to get along, or let's uh, reconcile this stuff. You know, I I think certainly think it helps because um, one of the challenges really is that. Um, you know, we, the, the country is so socially segregated, right, by, by race. Like we did a, just a survey um, a few years back, and we asked people to tell us about their friendship networks, like, and how diverse they were. Um, and it turns out that, um, you know, the, the astonishing number that we came back with, and this is a nationally representative survey, is that the average white person's friendship network is 93% white. Um, and fully 75% of whites reported that they had absolutely no, no one no person of color of any kind in their, in their social networks. So, you know, and, but the problem is that um, that's the result of our history. And the, but the problem is that we just don't have that many public spaces that help people communicate across those lines, right? Um, there, you know, public schools were some places where the, the, that kind of mixing was supposed to occur, but we have lost much of the gains that we made uh, from Brown v. Board of Education uh, that actually did succeed um, in, um, in integrating schools up through the 80s, and we've lost a lot of that ground since the 1980s. Um, but if you think about it, 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 there's just not that many institutions. And so churches could be uh, one of those places. And I, I think people, it's helpful for people if they have a structure where they have permission to enter into these kinds of difficult conversations. That's much easier than, you know, trying to find the random, you know, if you're living in a mostly white neighborhood, trying to find, you know, the random uh, African-American person on the street and say, hey, can I talk to you about, you know, these difficult issues? I mean, that's hard, hard to do. But if we have these kind of structures, and I think churches can be these places, um, but it's going to take some pastoral, kind of courageous pastoral leadership, I think, to get us there. See, I, I grew up in California. Um and I, I just, I had, I had friends with everybody. My friend, my parents would take us to the, yeah. the different delis, uh, you know, the all, all the different restaurants and boroughs that are in California. We can go get authentic, real food. And so, to me, I didn't really, I didn't really, you know, deal with racism. And then when I moved to uh, Utah, I for the first six months, I didn't see anybody but white people. And mm-hmm. it was really weird to me. Like I it really stuck out to me. It's one of the, it's one of the first things that I went, what the hell, where, where the hell are we? Um, I remember the first time I saw a Hispanic gentleman and I was like, Oh my gosh, cool. Other people are here. Um, the, uh, <laughs> and, and it was like, it was like, wow. And even now in Utah is, I think 93% white, but uh, we're supporting black lives matter. So that's good. Uh, but I think they're still going to vote for Trump. Um, but you, you bring up a good point on, 
on how hard it is for us to unravel this. There's the conversation's really good, but there's a lot we have to unpack. Um, James Baldwin uh, spoke about, and, and some of it uh, as some of his uh, the people that came on him sexually in the South when he toured. But basically, this 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 the shame that white people have inside of the horrors of what we've done, and the fact that trying to reconcile or face them isn't fun and isn't isn't cool and it isn't like a good feeling you know you're like okay we we did some bad stuff um but but having to sort through it and cleanse it like we we need to in the conversation like i'm sorry for that i'm sorry for that and i'm sorry for that uh is an important discussion because until we atone for it until we go okay that we're wrong we're gonna do better you know it's just like anything on an apology you've got you've got to do the thing but uh, to what you mentioned earlier, like I, I've watched so many people. I, I used to love watching the interviews after 2016 because they were like, why did you vote for Trump? And you see people that would first be like, it's about the jobs. And then you either see the misogyny pop out. You get them talking long if you start getting the truth out. And you either get misogyny or you get racism out. And I've seen so many Trump voters that will come out or Republican voters that will come out and go, go, well, the black people and, you know, other races are breeding so much and they're immigrating in this country, they're going to outnumber us and they're going to pay us back for all the things that we did to them over the last 400 years or 200 years. And I'm like, really? That's your mentality? Um, I mean, it's just extraordinary to look at. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, people have this uh, cultural anxiety or racial anxiety where they're worried that once they become a numbered and, and of course they've, you know, I know a lot of people that have trouble still with um, mixed couples from different races, you know, Oh, they're, 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 you know, taking away the Puritan, whatever, whatever, all that racist stuff. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me, the, the outlook that people have, I mean, I think it's by 2050 uh, white people will be outnumbered. Um, so, I mean, you yeah, can't they, stop they've actually coming. adjusted it. Just it down to 2042. Is it 2042 uh, yeah, now? The, yeah, I yeah. think the original pronouncement was – they got all the press was 2050, but as the countries continued to shift, um, that number's kind of inched, inched its way down. I think it's now around 2042, 2043 um, today. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite lines from No Country for Old Men, it, you can't stop what's coming. That's vanity. <laughs> So, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna <laughs> to yeah. come here. We might as well reconcile it and stuff. Yeah. So um, uh, what are some other things in the book that we maybe haven't covered? Well, you know, I think just right on line with what you were saying, I, I, I think that um, certainly there are external reasons for white people and white Christians in particular to um, really confess, right, to use a theological term, right, um, to really tell the truth um, about, our, about our history because it helps us understand how we got to where we are, um, right? I think that's really important, and to be honest about that. But I think that many whites, um, and I have to confess there was a bit in me of, me, of this in me as well, um, have not quite realized what we ourselves have at stake in telling the truth, right? Um, so it's not just that um, we uh, should repair some of the damage that we have done um, out here. We should make things right with our African-American brothers and sisters. That is all certainly true very, very important. Um, but if you think about the integrity, um, if, if I'm talking to white Christians, for example, you know, if you think about um, what are we passing on to our kids, right? And you ask that question, um, surely we want to pass down a faith that's free of racism, that's free of white supremacy. Um, and if we realize how deeply that got ingrained into the faith we received, 
that means that our generation, right, is the one that's got to do the work, um, that's got to do the work to really fix it um, so that we're not handing down those same damaging um, and really disfigured uh, a version of, of Christianity um, that, that has come to us um, in many ways. Like we've got an opportunity. Our eyes are open. Um, there's a real window um, here, I think, uh, to, to respond um, and, 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 and to really do the hard work. And, and we have something at stake in that. It's not just that, you know, we're doing on behalf of some other group that we've wronged, um, but like we have our own self-interest, um, you know, in um, really kind of trying to recover the integrity of a faith that's been deeply, deeply disfigured by white supremacy. And I, I love what you said. The, the, th- the interesting thing about it that seems to be a theme through all of it is the theme of scarcity. And of course, you need a straw man and you need to go, they're taking your stuff over there. And, and, and there, there, there can't be this unifying vision of a, of a rising tide lifts all boats. To me, that's what it is. Hey, mm-hmm. um, you guys are crying out. You're, you're, I mean, we can see on TV and, and through news reports of police killings, we need to change what's going on and there needs to be policy change and, and change in everyone's attitudes. Um, and, and if we, together we lift everyone up, you know, this, this thing that, this thing of vision that, that Trump does and other people that have, have used it for power going back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to gain the government power is by going, the immigrants your problem. Um, you know, even I think, I think Jesus and Jesus' parents were persecuted, weren't they? And they, that's why they had to go to uh, a different place to have him or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, so, so, you know, there's always been this thing going on and, and it's it's time to just stop where we stop going, you know. I mean, some of the greatest people that we've had contributing to this society have been Americans. I mean, Steve, or immigrants, uh, Steve Jobs. Um, and um, Steve Jobs, uh, the, the CEO of Google right now, grew up living on a, a dirt hut in uh, India. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many people that contribute. In fact, uh, in the recent book we're reading from uh, Gene Perillo, Hatemonger, $68 billion are contributed to the American economy mm-hmm. as a net plus through immigrants. And uh, so, yeah, we need, to, we need to start having this thing and, and maybe realize it's, it's about power and then the identity of America really isn't the identity of white America. And, you know, we came here and, you know, settled the 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 uh, the people that were heathens or you know they were they weren't like us basically that's the real problem um, and uh, and instead of uh, instead of uh, of appreciating their cultural differences and racial differences we we you know we turn them into into um, just ugly racism uh, and persecution so um, hopefully that's the journey we can all go on I think more people need to have it I you know. Let me ask you this. Some people have said to me uh, from uh, that are religious is they've said, you know, Chris, a certain generation that we grew up in the 50s has got to kind of pass away. There's they're just so ingrained with it mm-hmm. from the 50s. And 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 uh, does that do you think we do you think we're still going to be quoting Baldwin and talking about how no one listened to Baldwin 50 years from now? You know, I, I hope not. Um, but but I do think these windows um, show up and, and then, you know, they won't be open forever. Right. So yeah. I, I do think this current moment we're at is one to take advantage of. Um, you know, the civil rights movement was a moment and it, you know, it, it kind of came. There was this effervescence. And then um, we had this period through the 80s where that wasn't there anymore. Right. Um, in the 90s. And I think we're at a, at a new moment um, where we can really make some headway on these things. But, uh, you know, that assumes 
that racism, um, so, you know, I understand the kernel of truth in that, but, but it assumes that racism lives in individuals, None. right? And so we just have to wait for those individuals to die. That's a good point. Um, but, I never thought but what it doesn't do is realize that racism lives in systems and in institutions, mm-hmm. right? And so even after those people die, the institutions that they built, and I don't just mean buildings um, or laws, I mean, although I do mean those things, but I mean theology, liturgy, practices, habits, like all of these things are things that we have um, inherited. And so I, I think that's the interrogation and the work that has to be done. It's to say, okay, just because the, the people who wrote uh, the hymns or wrote the theology, um, you know, in the 19th century are dead, doesn't mean that their influence doesn't still live on, right? Um, uh, and so I, I, it really is, our, again, our generation's job, I think, to sort of take what we've received take a hard look at it in the light of our history and ask the question, like, which of this is about, uh, which of these represents a faithful way forward that has integrity, right? Um, That isn't wrapped up with protecting, uh, you know, um, our sense of whiteness or or using Christianity to protect that space uh, of power. But but how can we really move forward in a way that is, um, you know, more consistent with our higher principles and not blind to those things that are sort of hiding away and built into our institutions. That makes complete better sense. Yeah, totally. Um, it, you know, it, it's interesting to me how uh, we've gone on this path. And one of the things I've been citing is, is, you know, right now we're in this dark moment. Like I ask people, do we, do we have to go this dark to deal with racism? But I guess hopefully this is our bottom because I don't know want to know what the next bottom is. If it's not um, another four years of Trump, um, where he's just gonna, where he's just gonna, you know, go full, go gusto um, with his agenda. Um, but also, the thing that I worry about is that if Biden is reelected or elected, um, that we go back to that sort of Obama era where uh, all the racist, you know, uh, overt racism goes back in the closet and was hidden from. Jeez, I, I lost so many friends that were hiding in the closet when they first when they came out after Trump. I was like, holy crap! I thought you guys were with us. Um, and I, I'm just worried that it's going to go back to, like you say, the period of, of where we go through these roles and everyone's just going to back in closet BPC for a while. And then, you know, we're just going to have another Trump and I don't know, two presidents yeah. or one. Well, I, I think that's up to us, right? I mean, yeah. I, I really do. I think it's, it's up to us to kind of, uh, chart that course. And we got an opening here. Um, yeah, I'll end with maybe one more hopeful note. Um, so almost this time last year, as I was finishing up the book, I was in Richmond, um, you know, the former capital of the Confederacy, and I was walking up and down Monument Avenue. Um, it's this 14-block kind of promenade. Um, it's like one of the wealthiest areas in Richmond, um, and it was uh, there's like five uh, massive Confederate uh, statues and monuments all along the way. Um, four of the five of those are now gone. Um, wow. They were, they've all been removed since, since George Floyd and the fifth one to Robert E. Lee is scheduled for removal. Now those statues have stood for over a hundred years, um, you know, there um, in, in Richmond and within just a few weeks time um, that enough movement has happened that they've actually been, been moved. And again, that along with the, the Mississippi state flag, um, I think opening day of major league baseball, that was all uh, about black lives matters, um, you know, at, at the beginning of the games, these are all, very new things uh, for us. And, and, and I, I, I think there's some hope here that um, something new is happening, that it won't start to fade in the background, no matter what happens in early November. 
I sure hope so. And I've loved the discussion about identity because that's going to really stick with me. Um, you know, and that's why it makes it hard is because we grew up with that identity. You know, I, yeah. I, I spoke about this, you know, I, I grew up in California and I didn't feel like I had a lot of racist sort of tendencies, but you have unconscious bias. But I, I grew up idolizing uh, John Wayne and and kind of idolizing him from a from a standpoint of a man being a man. Yeah, but. Right. I didn't see the unconscious, you know, stuff that was being fed to me through the TV. And so even now I've, I've been, it's, it's kind of hurt a little bit to go, I got to give up my John Wayne <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta deal with uh, some of that stuff that he brought into me. And so it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to realize that maybe the story of America, the shining city on the Hill isn't as pretty as we like to think it is. I mean, there's, there's that pride that you have where you're like, we're Americans, you know, and uh, what are we like? Number one in imprisoning people in the world or something? Ooh, go yeah. for that. Um, now we're number one in coronavirus. So there's that. Um, do you want to put a plug in for PRRI, your organization? Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, PRI says Republic Religion Research Institute. Um, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, organization conducting research at the intersection of religion, values, and public life. And we'll have a big pre-election survey, uh, you know, coming out uh, in September that we're doing. Uh, I'm sorry, coming out in October, uh, just a few weeks ahead of the election uh, that we do every year for the past 11 years with the Brookings Institution. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. And then uh, did we get a .com for them in there? Uh, sorry, it's PRRI.org. All about the plugs, too. And let's get some plugs for your book and, and uh, where to find you on the interwebs. Great. Uh, so it's way too long, the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity and it's up at Amazon. It's up at a bookshop anywhere you can get books uh, locally at your local bookstore should, should be able to get their hands on it. Awesome sauce. I've loved this discussion we've had today. I, I got to say for me, even as an atheist, I respect people in religion and, and I look forward to the day when, when everyone comes forth and we can all kumbaya and love each other and human beings together. And they, and, and whoever supported Trump goes, yeah, we, we were bad. We did wrong. And, uh, you know, let's let's do something better. So I, I hope we can all get to that moment because I, I'm a big believer in John Lennon's Imagine, you know, as as one people, one humanity, one everybody. You know, we can argue about the whatever sort of silly beliefs or, you know, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that. We can all argue about that. But as long as we're a humanity of one people, to me, that's the most important. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I'll just keep reading James Baldwin. And <laughs> Amen it's, my little, yeah. it's my little rock of hope. So, uh, there you go. Anyway, guys, uh, thanks to Robert Jones for being on the uh, podcast with us. We certainly appreciate it. Check out his book. You can go to Amazon.com or uh, other book sellers. White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. You can also check out his other book, The End of White Christian America. I want to take and read that as well. Or you can see him on uh, all the different columns he writes for, The Atlantic, etc. Uh, thanks, Amanda, for tuning in. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us on YouTube to see the video version of this. And all the wonderful interviews we've been having for a lot of different authors. You can also go to thecvpn.com, CR9 podcast over there, Chris Voss Podcast Network, and you can support the new book club we just launched yesterday, patreon.com, Fortress Chris Voss. We're going to be talking about the background, the books, and all that sort of good stuff, and uh, I think you'll like it. Thanks, my audience, and thanks to Robert Jones for being here. We'll see you next time. Thank you.